the expression from the music inspired me so much to take risks and it inspired damn near the whole rap game. Hello again, I'm Adam Unz. You may know me as the host of The Opus, and now I'm bringing my own show, The Spark Parade, to the Consequence Podcast Network. I speak with artists and creatives about the cultural artifacts that spark their personal interest and creativity, whether it's music, books, movies, video games, or any other kind of art. I've never spoke about it in this amount of detail. I'm suddenly going, oh my God, I'm blowing my own mind here, Christ. It's, it's actually a giant part of my life. By talking about the things we love, we share and discover insights into our personality and the things that drive us. It's just magic, really. I mean, frustrating and it makes some people angry, but I don't think anyone's ever done anything like it. I speak with people like Connor Robers, Phoenix's Thomas Mars, Chris Gethard, Helen Hong, Adrian Young, and more, so their sparks of inspiration can start a fire in you. I'm grateful for those who continue to put our history and who we are as a people in the forefront and make you see it. Find the Spark Parade wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024, these are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. Dead Milton's unique style of mixing hardcore energy with clean guitars and weird satirical lyrics felt like it was about as close to ska as you can get without actually being ska. On top of that, they did have a few ska tunes. If You Love Somebody, Set Them on Fire was probably their best known. Basically, what I'm getting at is that Dead Milkmen are a great band and their guitarist Joe Gennaro, i.e. Joe Jack Talcum, is a prime candidate to be on this podcast. So here is our interview with him. Their new album, Quaker City Quiet Pills, released on June 9th. Make sure you grab a copy. Dead Milkmen were a huge part of our teenage years. Yeah, for sure. I don't think that you could get into punk rock in the 90s without hearing the Dead Milkmen. I feel like those tapes, the, the especially their first couple tapes from the 80s, were just circulated amongst punks. Yeah, and tons of kids would be wearing the Dead Milkmen shirt at school. Be like, what's this all about? That first record, that cover is so good. I mean, definitely. I don't think I had one of those shirts, but I'm sure I wanted one. It was hard to get a Dead Milkman shirt in Gilroy. <laughs> you had to go all the way to San Jose or mail order it. Did you listen? I listened to Big Lizard in my backyard a million times. I think I mostly just had it either on mixtapes or we get played when I was over at friends' houses. Yeah. Yeah, it's, just, it's so good. I think that like nice blend of like satire, punk. I don't know. It's just, it's just great. Like there's no band like dead milkman, no band like the dead milkman. You heard it here first folks. Well, we should probably start with, uh, if you love somebody, set them on fire. Mm -hmm. I think that's probably the best known dead milkman ska song. Can you remember when you guys wrote that song? Um, Anything about like, (laughs) were, were you like, let's write a ska song or did it, was there any reason why it came out that way? Um, Rodney made a tape uh, for a fictional band called the Sunflower Children of God. This was in the late 80s, a cassette that he passed around to friends, me included. Uh, And it was on that tape. And I think the the joke for us, the in-joke with Sunflower Children of God uh, figured into the 
prehistory of the Dead Milkmen when we were just a story. Mm-hmm. They were one of the bands uh, that were associated with the Dead Milkmen because when you when you when you make up fake bands, of course you make band trees and other fake bands that are related <laughs> to them. And then eventually, yeah. so he made this album called Twenty Thousand Bong Hits from Home, <laughs> and he did a little tape a cover for it and everything. There, I think it's on my bootlegs uh, page on my website if anybody cares to hear hear it. <laughs> but one of the songs was uh, If You Love Somebody Set Them On Fire and I asked Rodney if you wouldn't mind if the Dead Milkman covered it or did it and we did it. We we covered it. I think Rod- Rodney doesn't play guitar so he, he, he plays keyboards. So his version is very keyboard based but I heard an inkling of in order to arrange it for the band, of course, we, Dave and I worked on it. Dave, who's deceased, uh, Dave Blood, did, did an arrangement for bass and guitar. It just sounded like it, he was already making it ska, so we just pushed it to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what are some of the other? I know there's um, Little Man in My Head. Yeah. Gorilla Girl. And that was on the same album. Gorilla Girl, yeah, it was an early one, an early dead looking one that Dave and I uh, wrote together. One one of the early ones that when I first met Dave that we came up with. It's just it just seems like a natural, easy thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> he played that bass line and it sounded like, well, that sounds like a, a an old walking bass ska ska thing. So that's why I countered with the ska. I like to do ska rhythms. Yeah. Well, what are some of the what are some ska bands that uh that you're into or that you were into at least back then? I think when I was in high school, the first thing, I can't remember whether it was the specials or the English beat. I think the English beat, mm-hmm. that album, what is it? I just can't stop it. Yeah. The, the, it just blew me away. It was, I, I'd never heard anything like that. And I didn't know what to expect. I just bought it off of a recommendation. A high school friend of mine, when I was in high school, had a, after school job at a record store, chain record store, a mall called Sam Goody. And he recommended it. And, um, it also, I saw good reviews of it. So I picked it up, not hearing any of the tracks and put it on. And I was, everything was good. And I, I just thought this was amazing. And it was so different. And then the specials, of course. And that was equally amazing to me. I was already a fan of Elvis Costello. And I found out that I found out the specials of that because I read something about him uh, producing it or recording it. So I had to check that out and it was awesome. And I had no idea that ska preceded reggae because I heard reggae, of course, before ska earlier and like when I was in junior high school and stuff. And I heard Bob Marley before I heard his reggae stuff before I heard any ska. But later on, I found out that it was the ska went into reggae and reggae. I think, I guess, slow down the ska or something. Yeah, yeah. And then, yeah, then ska got revived, and that was the two-tone stuff, so. Yeah, that, that's where I heard ska. And then, I think in, 80, in the mid-80s, I got a tape of the, the Scottalites, 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 a live tape. And that, that also was amazing to me, and that's, that was my introduction to the original wave. With the, what that sounded like, 
a little bit slower, a little bit laid, more laid back. And then you can hear how all that goes into reggae, I think. During the 80s, were you familiar with any American ska bands? Like, I'm curious. One of the things I've been curious about is if uh, you were familiar with the Hooters in their of ska course. period. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, they're from Philadelphia. Yeah, yeah. That's why I'm wondering. And and because they had like they had like a, a Scottalites cover that was like a radio hit in Philly. It's exclusively Philly, to my understanding. Man on the Street. Yes, I, I'm familiar with that song. And they also had a hit called Fighting on the Same Side. I think they redid it, a different version when their album yeah. came out. But, they, but that was, I think it was maybe more ska when they had the, the independent single. Mm-hmm. I I bought that also <laughs> at uh, Sam Goody's. Because for one thing, it was an independent single. <laughs> yeah. But... Lo and behold, the, 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 the Hooters would open up for just about any band at that time before they got their, I guess, their uh, record deal. Their their management had them opening up. For, I, I saw them open up for The Clash. I saw them open up for The Who. I saw them open up even for the B-52s. Wow. So I was well, well initiated into the Hooters <laughs> thing before they went national. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's interesting because I, I wasn't sure if they were... Um like kind of more more in that sort of punk circle in those days but yeah, apparently they they were playing with those bands so yeah they were see it might seem odd in retrospect but they were yeah so dead milkman um you used to cover message to you rudy in your set sometimes yeah and we knew it from the specials yeah. version um, was that a common cover i've just seen it occasionally like on a live set i've seen you you guys do it we did it I think in 89, we did it a lot on tour, but mm-hmm. usually save for an encore, not, not in our regular set. I think that I see. was like an encore, an encore song. Was it a pretty straight cover of it? Rodney was just beginning on the, to play the keyboard. I think Rodney started playing. Rodney didn't always play keyboards in the Dead Milkman, and he started on the Beelzebubba tour, and that was 88, I think, mm-hmm. 89. 89 and that's i think when we that's when we worked it up with rodney playing the keyboard like the organ part and we didn't have any horns so i tried to do the the that little horn riff on the guitar and that's how we did it (laughs) (laughs) we we recorded it uh like as a warm-up when we were doing the metaphysical graffiti album and then it 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 eventually got, I think it's a released on one of the compilation albums. Oh, so there's a recording of it floating around out there. There's a studio recording of it. I think it's on now we are 20. I might be wrong, but there's a compilation that came out when we were on our hiatus. Was that a particularly favorite special song? I liked it. Yeah. Does that song open up the album? Yeah. So it would would have been the first one I heard. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah i always like that song now kind of recently uh it was the 2020 you did a cover of um the heaven 17 song we don't need this fascist groove thing yes but your interpretation is like kind of more of a ska song yeah and that that kind of evolved as we were working it out almost mm-hmm. maybe even in the studio when we recorded it uh and we did that a lot as a, a, a in our sets in in 2018 2019 we we actually started playing that in 2017 Mm -hmm. so 
if there's any recordings of the early ones, it might not be as ska, but yeah, the original's like kind of a synth pop, disco y sort of thing. So I could see that translating that to a live band. When we first did it, yeah. It wasn't as ska, and then the more we played it, the I I think I decided. So and we recorded it. I think we recorded it in 2018, even though it wasn't released till 2020. Mm, yeah. yeah. Did you send? So, and then was it specifically released because of the whole like election thing, or was that just the timing that it happened to be? We wanted it to be released right after we recorded it, but Rodney replaced Ronald Reagan with. Donald Trump or something like that. <laughs> like he changed the lyric. And when we went to get clearance for it, um, our manager came back and said, they're not the, the publisher denies the lyric change. So we couldn't release it that way. Um, and then we, 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 I think Rodney wrote or somebody wrote them the, the, one of the people from who wrote it <laughs> and they, they came back and said, no, no. Our public, just to make sure that it wasn't the publisher <laughs> being being thick, but no, they said no. We 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 please respect our desire. And and what's more infuriating infuriating to us is that LCD Sound System did a version, and they didn't say Ronald Reagan. I think they said something like that the orange the orange thing or something. I don't know. <laughs> they changed it and they got away with it, but maybe they didn't go through the. Maybe they didn't even. Yeah, they probably didn't get the clearance that you guys did. <laughs> <laughs> we were trying to get clearance for a lyric change because we were doing it properly, and that's what happened. So we had to change. We had to re- Rodney had to dub that in the Ronald Reagan. You can't. You can barely tell. They did it such a good job. <laughs> it would have been great if you hadn't done it really well. Just leave it like a weird patch. But by 2020, <laughs> we yeah, it was just in the can and. We wanted to put an album out, but we were we were planning to put an album out in 2020. We were working on the album that's coming supposed to come out this June, but all the studios closed down and no one would let us come in. Yeah, because of the pandemic and the rules of that. Said so put this out now. So you got this um, new record in the works. You put out the song uh, uh, "Grandpa's Not a Racist," but he voted for one. Yeah, can you talk a little bit about uh, the inspiration behind that song? That's what Rodney just got upset. He claims he got up, you know, he woke up one morning really angry and wrote an ang- wanted to write an angry, uh, basically anti-MAGA song. And that's what happened. Sure. I mean, yeah. And it's very, it's very like old school punk. It all, it kind of reminds me a little bit of the Dead Kennedys and that style of early 80s, late 70s punk that's politically charged, politically charged. Yeah, I think a lot of us can relate to that song, you know? Sure. Knowing somebody in our life. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's. I think it's pretty clever. <laughs> so just I was circling back to uh, If You Love Somebody, Set Them on Fire. So this was, this was a song from a fake band of Rodney's. Because the point of view is like, you know, it's, it's like a pyromaniac's point of view. So was that, was that, was the whole band... Was the character of the whole band like that? I'm just curious how much thought went into because I, I like one of the things I, I like about your songs is you sometimes have that sort of point of view type of song where you're you're speaking from a a, a weird character or a dark character, and this is an example of that. 
I don't remember a lot about the rest of that tape, so I'm not going to be able to tell you right off the top of my head <laughs> what point of view the rest of it had. But I do know that <laughs> I, I put a tape out just before that, not uh, like maybe a year before that, with a song called If You Love Somebody Set Them Free, stealing the whole title from Sting's song. Mm-hmm. But a whole different, a whole different uh, lyric and completely different music. And I had done, I sort of was doing that steal, just t- taking as a way to write songs, taking other people's song titles and using them as an inspiration for a completely different song. Because for some reason, I'd read that song titles couldn't be copyrighted. So hey, I just I'll just do that. <laughs> <laughs> is that true that they can't I be hope so <laughs> i don't think they can i think and and also that inspired rodney to write the song i am the walrus for the dead milk and we never got sued for it so i guess it is true <laughs> yeah I, I also wrote another song called um i left my heart in san francisco which the record company that put it, they, they changed it to San Francisco, but the original title was I, I Left My Heart in San Francisco, which had nothing to do with the more popular song of the same name. But anyway, Rodney, Rodney heard that and he, he said a, a, a lady who was at his house hearing it said, if you love somebody, set them free. No, if you love somebody, you should set them on fire. <laughs> and that inspired Rodney to write the counter song, if you love somebody, set them on fire. And, 20,000 bong hits from home. So, the, I'll, yeah, here's the titles of the songs on that. <laughs> Charles Manson, another thing, so you can get an idea what that is. <laughs> Rodney, Rodney's always had a fascination with Charles Manson from as long as I know him. The Sun Shines Out of My Asshole, which then I took that title because he took, I took that title and I made my own song called The Sun Shines Out of My Asshole, which had nothing to do with his. Reefer Aroni, I think Rodney was in this. <laughs> into smoking weed at this time. I know he, he was at this point in time. He doesn't anymore, but that was his weed, his weed <laughs> phase. Everybody, I don't know if everybody goes through it, but um, whites in night satin instead of nights in white satin, whites in night satin, <laughs> cobalt blue sunshine. Cobalt blue sunshine may have been a precursor to a song called Beige Sunshine, which Rodney and I collaborated on also for the same album, Metaphysical Graffiti, that had If You Love Somebody's Hit Them On Fire. Reefer Rooter, Jungle Music, Fuzzhead Jr., My Connection, and of course the title track, 2,000 bong hits from him. I said 20,000. It's actually 2,000. Just 2,000. They tell you. Yeah, it's two. So I misspoke earlier. It's only (laughs) 2,000. And then for the, uh, (laughs) for the, the Almar, he did a parody of the Almar of my tape. My Jack Talcum tape that had "If You Love Somebody, Set Them Free" on it. Nice. So we are inspiring each other through parody. <laughs> <laughs> so my friend Mike Park, who's he was in this band called Skank and Pickle. Do you do you remember that? Band? I saw them play. Yeah, I remember them. I I even probably have correspondence from them. Yes, yeah, Skank and Pickle, of course. <laughs> what do you remember about Skank and Pickle? <laughs> they play ska faster than I, anybody else I could think <laughs> of that I saw. It's like maybe too fast in the, for my taste, but they were, yeah, they're they're full of energy and great. Yeah, I saw them when the Dead Milkman played us uh, like a a radio showcase 
that they played at. Oh yeah. <laughs> and of all, and, and, uh, the, the headliner was not the obvious band you would expect. <laughs> they were, um, Duran Duran. <laughs> what year was this? Uh, 93. <laughs> was that when they, was that when they had that comeback? Yeah, I think so. Duran Duran had a, com- yeah, they had no tour. No, they had like that, um, and I won't cry for yesterday. They had that like weird nineties, yeah, like ordinary. Like, something. Yeah. So that, yeah. Way, way after notorious. Yeah. I, that is a weird lineup. <laughs> Dead milkman, <laughs> Skega pickle and Duran Duran. <laughs> oh, there are other bands too. There's a <laughs> Carter, the unstoppable sex machine. Is <laughs> there also. <laughs> <laughs> Anyone else? Do you have any other memories from that show? Like, like mental mental pictures from that show i remember getting way too drunk and s- s- dancing to <laughs> dancing like a man man to skanking pickle because <laughs> <laughs> because we played the way it was set up is we played earlier and then they played and and duran duran closed out the night and carter the unstoppable sex machine i think either played before us or directly after us i don't remember we were one of the earlier earlier bands. What what so I'm I'm unfamiliar. What's Carter the Unstoppable Sex Machine? Um they were like from remember when the Stone Roses were popular? Yeah. They were from England. Okay. Uh they were in that I think they were in that that uh indie rock band. Okay. Mm. They formed in I'm just looking up Wikipedia, they formed in eighty seven. <laughs> but the fa- they reached the height of the fame in '92, so they were pretty famous by that when they they were at the height of their fame when they played that show, and it was in San Francisco, and the radio station that sponsored it was the the alternative radio station from there. I don't remember. Oh, so that would have been probably Live 105. Live 105, yeah, yeah. It was their it was their like audience appreciation thing. Do you remember where the show was in San Francisco? What what venue? It wasn't like what I would call a typical. Like it was like a where a, one of those venues where you had to build the stage, mm, yeah, erect it, and like one of those all-purpose or things. It could have even been a place where companies have conferences, gotcha. things like that. Okay. So, Mike, I was telling Mike that uh, we were interviewing you, and he said, uh, he said I had me and Kevin Dill. That's the Skank and Pickle roadie. Had dinner with Joe. Yeah, I know. I know Kevin. You know Kevin. Okay. <laughs> what do you? I know Kevin. Yeah, he's the person I uh, correspond with. Do you remember having dinner with Kevin and Mike? Vaguely, yes, yes, I do. Oh. Very interesting. <laughs> now that you mention it, <laughs> do you do you have any any uh, Kevin Dill stories for us? He was at the last. He was at the last show that I played solo in San Francisco. Because the last time I was in the area in 2018, it was in Berkeley. Mm-hmm. I remember him being there, <laughs> uh, pretty wasted. Uh, Sounds right. It's like there's Kevin. He's you know older, but still the still same. Still the same. Kevin. Just like all <laughs> of us, older but still the same. <laughs> he, I remember he he uh, told me about Operation Ivy, and lo and behold, we the dead milkman played with them early on in, in their stint. Oh, really? Where, where was, whereabouts was that? That was at, uh, Berkeley square. Okay. 
one of the shows. We played two shows with Operation Ivy. They might have both been at Berkeley Square. <laughs> but with them, they opened up for us <laughs> because we were, we were, we had Punk Rock Girl and, uh, that was the tour we did for that. So I, I sort of got friendly with Lint, who, who was Tim Armstrong mm-hmm. from that. Cause I, I really like them. So, and that, that, I think we played a show with them be- before they had their album and one maybe after they had their album. Wow. So, so you guys were on tour promoting, um, the record, um, which was the Beelzebubba. Was that the one with punk rock girl? Yes. And, uh, and so you, you play Berkeley square, you do your Berkeley show and operation Ivy is your opening act. And you'd only just heard about them from Kevin. So they're still like an up and coming band. Yeah. I might have the time. Uh, Wow. It might have been before Beelzebubba, but I, I don't remember. I'm, I might be mixing up the time frame, but I know they were the, they were they played before us instead of the other. And way. how how were they? Can you remember what they were like at that show? Uh, amazing! So they they blew me away. I became an instant fan. Wow! And we we both like Mr. T experience, Kevin. I mean, Kevin and I had the same a lot of the same musical tastes. Mm-hmm. In fact, I I accidentally saw. Operation Ivy play their second to last ever show because I went to see uh, Fugazi play in San Francisco, and lo and behold, there they were. They weren't on the bill, but they played. Huh. Wait, so, wait, so they they played a they 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 played a show at Gilman that I wanted to. I was I was like on vacation visiting friend, um, and we tried to go to the Gilman, but it was sold out. But the very next day. We went to see Fugazi play an afternoon show in San Francisco and got surprised with the set from Operation Ivy. This was like a house show, right? It was, I don't consider it a house show, but it was uh, an underground show, a, a non-traditional venue show. Oh. Uh, maybe somebody did live there. And and I, I do remember... Uh, Jella Biafra was there, not playing, but just in the audience. And uh, I remember Ian <laughs> sweeping up because we we stayed chatting. And after I'm <laughs> the guys are like they they're such the <laughs> uh, responsible band. They they helped clean up. <laughs> we we were we were there afterwards talking to Jesse and Lint and sweeping up, <laughs> cleaning up the place. <laughs> That's what I remember from that. That's awesome. But yeah, the Chessie said, yeah, I'm leaving the band and you're lucky we saw us because we're not going to be around. Dang. Anymore. So I saw them three times. So Fugazi, um, unannounced set by Operation Ivy. Anyone else play that? And somebody else missed, I think, uh, the Mr. T Experience might have been the other band. Hmm. Don't quote me, but I think, because that's another band I wanted my friend to see. She was, she was living in San Francisco. She, she, uh, no, she wasn't living in San Francisco. She was still living in Philly, but we were visiting her friend that lived in San Francisco. And I was like, you gotta see Mr. T experience. (laughs) And who knows when they're going to come to the East coast to play. So let's, let's, let's try to see them in, in Operation Ivy. I think they, I think they were at that. Gig. Do you remember how many people were at the show? Was this sort of like a like a low key type of show? It was a low key kind of. It wasn't like super packed. Mm-hmm. It was a comfortable, comfortable show. Huh. 
and we just happened to find out about it. And, uh, that was that. So we lucked out because we, we didn't, we couldn't see them because it was sold out at filming. Still were able to. How was, uh, who was, how was Fugazi? Amazing. And I got lucky because I also knew somebody who corresponded with Ian and I got to hear Fugazi on, he sent her a tape and then she dubbed it for me and I got to hear them before they had any release. So I was already kind of familiar there too. I felt like such the insider. (laughs) (laughs) So in, uh, in the early days of dead milkman, when you were coming up in Philadelphia, you guys kind of were part of the hardcore scene, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, we started like playing indie, whatever gigs we could play. And we didn't really consider ourselves a hardcore band, but that scene was, had already been brewing and we were just getting invited to play shows. Interestingly enough, in Philly, there are a lot of shows that were, they weren't like strict hardcore, but hardcore bands would be on them. But you'd also have more, some old, an old school punk band or whatnot. How did the, like, if you have like these hardcore bands playing and, and you guys played, did you guys go over well with these audiences? Uh, with some of them. Yeah. With some of the, uh, at least enough of the audience that we would get us back. And we would also put on our own shows as well at the same venues that had the, and, and white band. There's, there's another band that also played hardcore shows that were similar, that were at, weren't strictly hardcore. They were called Electric Love Muffin and they played the same shows that we played a lot of them. Mm-hmm. I think it inspired us to play faster because when we started out, we weren't the fastest. We got we got faster, like in 83, we, in, we got faster as, as we saw, found ourselves assimilating into that scene. Yeah. Maybe as a con- subconscious way of pleasing the crowd, but just we're fitting in. And also because we enjoyed it. I remember first hearing In God We Trust by the Dead Kennedys, and that was the fastest thing I had ever heard up until that point and that inspired us and this is that this is when it was just rodney me and my neighbor and we weren't a real band but that inspired us to write some songs in that vein which led to eventually i guess they, they became part of some our set what were some of the bands and the venues you know the the diy venues in, in philly when you guys were starting out there are bands like why die mm-hmm FOD for Flag of Democracy. There is, I don't, I don't think Agnostic Front were from Philly, but there are a lot of bands that played Philly a lot. Mm-hmm. Like Iron Cross, I guess from DC played Philly a lot. Um, Decontrol, Autistic Behavior. Hmm. There was a band that I really liked called the Stickmen, and you really couldn't categorized the stickmen as anything but they were fast so they they played a lot of hardcore scenes scene shows there's a band called circle of shit cos (laughs) 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 i remember that now um and the venues there is there is one venue called love club which was a Often just 21 and over, mm-hmm. which sucked for me because I wasn't 21 yet, so I couldn't go to those shows. But occasionally they would have an all-ages show. 
but because they in Philly, at least back then, if you were to serve alcohol, you really had you couldn't allow anybody under twenty one. Although I got snuck in <laughs> sometimes, if it be if if I could find somebody that would. What was the best way to sneak in? Just doing it as a roadie, walking in with some gear. Yeah, <laughs> that's how I got to see the the misfits. Nice before I was of age at that very place. <laughs> I had, but I had to. I couldn't be in the in the in the pit. I had to be in the balcony acting as the roadie because <laughs> I guess they didn't want to get they didn't want to get the club's license revoked. And I I really looked way younger than I my real age even. Okay. I might have been 19, but I looked like I was 12, <laughs> which was, which sucked. Did you ever get, did you ever get caught and kicked out? Yes, <laughs> I did get caught and kicked out and almost threatened the, the almost threatened to call the police. Oh man. And that, cause I had altered my ID. Wait, how did you alter your ID? Back then IDs were paper. Uh, the, the driver's license were paper. So it was pretty easy. You just get an exacto knife and you cut out a number from say your account number or whatever and you, you change it for the the date okay so that you you change your your dates and i i use that to get in the in in the, in the places for a while but then it didn't work at the um somebody figured it out the bouncer figured it out at the east side club which is another punk club that did the milkman even played out before i was of age Rodney wasn't of age either, and they wouldn't let us go out in front. We had to stay backstage all the time. <laughs> That's the way it was. Yeah, but yeah, that 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 upset me because all my friends were already inside, and I couldn't. I had to just wait the whole show, uh, walking around the city until they got got out. Do you remember which show that was? It was the Damned when they uh, came through in nineteen eighty two or eighty three. Uh yeah, that was, and then I got paranoid because they said you, the guy was like, "I could, you could, you could be arrested for doing this." You know, and I could call the cops on you, but I'll be nice, and I don't want to ever see you here again. Yeah. Uh, and the dead milk can play there <laughs> after that. Too. Wait, so were you paranoid at the show that you played there? No, no, I wasn't paranoid because we had to play. I was just paranoid that that. I would get pulled over for some reason. <laughs> they would see that my license, I, like I couldn't wait till I, I, I probably should have just reported the license lost. And then I didn't think of that. Oh, so they took your license. You didn't, you didn't get your license back. No, I got it back. But he's the, the guy said, you, he said, you know, you can get in big trouble for, Oh, this. for altering it. But that's what yeah, the bouncer told yeah. me. Yeah, yeah. For altering it. And the way he, he noticed the way he noticed was by holding it up to a light and he could faintly see yes. this. Cause, cause you, you laminate it. You don't have to laminate your license, but you laminate it after you use the exacto knife and change the, the number. Yeah. But then that one part that's <laughs> doubled up, that's gonna, that's gonna show through. Yeah. 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 How much older did you say you were when you, uh, altered your license? Did you, did you make it like you were just 21 or did you go a little too far? Probably too far. <laughs> I probably, uh, because I didn't, you know, you have only so many options and the date and the numbers you have. On yeah. There. <laughs> but I think I was, I think I was like 20. Three or something. Gotcha. <laughs> so we talked about this a little bit. The uh, before Dead Milkman was an uh, official band, it was like kind of a an idea or a joke band or a a concept that you you guys were yeah a concept band that made tapes yeah and that had and made a newsletter that had a story about us. Now the the, the newsletter started because of Wings doing one. 
and that gave you an idea to do one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the story. Wings. I still have some of them. Wings Fun Club. The Wings Fun Club. What kind of things did the Wings Fun Club talk about? Yeah, I I, I joined it because I wrote to a. Uh, I liked mail. I I still like mail, but back then, what kind of things you get? You get like four times a year. You would get a glossy fold out newsletter. Uh, maybe it was only twice a year. I don't know. I thought it was amazing for the little amount amount of money it cost to be in it. They probably lost money on on people that weren't in, in, in abroad because they sent the stuff out. They sent slides, <laughs> <laughs> like here's slides that Linda McCartney took of wings, and, <laughs> and or or whatever, and like slides. <laughs> <laughs> Put them in your own, have your own slideshow. <laughs> Set of four or five slides, I don't know. <laughs> and uh, what other things? Like little, I don't really remember. I remember the slides because it was so odd to me. Yeah, that is really weird. Yeah. But the newsletter itself was the thing that we were making fun of. It was so positive, and I wanted to make something that was just the opposite. <laughs> Like the people that were writing the newsletter hated the the, the guy and hated the fans. <laughs> and he was oblivious to all this. Nice. What was the process of creating the uh the dead milkman mythology in this in this time period? Was it just like just trying to think of the most ridiculous things as you could? Um yes. My friend Garth and I would like play a game in gin, Rummy, that was our favorite game. Uh and just talk while we're playing it and brainstorm like what's going to happen now. Let's, let's have, uh, let's have Jack Talcum, uh, record an album and his keyboard player, uh, who's addicted to smack, uh, passes out on the keys and it creates a song. (laughs) It's just obnoxious, but he goes with it and, releases it now his wife is going to have an abortion and she's going to make a coffee book table photo album all documenting <laughs> and that's going to be the big controversy for the next newsletter <laughs> and jack jack talcum was upset because he wanted the kid to he wanted to have the kid and she didn't want to and you and you you were recording songs on the on on tape at this time yes we did we did multi-tracking before there was four track cassette things um yeah i would play i would record on the basic track on like say a cassette and then i had a cassette and a stereo that i that i was able to rig so that the signal would pass through that and i had an eight track cartridge player recorder that i got at radio shack for really cheap that i recorded also on stereo it did a pretty good job of recording actually it was just annoying because you couldn't rewind. Mm. So I would record on the cassette and then play the cassette back whilst recording through this JCPenney stereo system that <laughs> I was able to take apart in the back and rig so that the sound would be mixed. Uh, they would get the sound would go. Uh, it would basically become a mixer from the microphone front would mix the microphone and the cassette signal. And I could go to the, take that, the output RCA jacks into the input of the A track 
and record. Therefore, you get a an overdub, a live overdub. You live mix to you couldn't remix anything. Yeah. And then if I wanted a third thing, sometimes I did. You take the eight track cartridge and play that back. You'd rewire. You'd switch your wires or uh, jacks around, and then uh, that would the, go back onto the cassette. And so then, how did how did all this sound? Um, you can hear some of it uh, on the bootleg page. It sounded it didn't sound the great greatest, but as long as you didn't do more than two passes, it was passable. Okay. Once you got once you got once you got the you know, past that, it would get too hissy. Yeah. Then you got too much tape tape hiss coming through. And I didn't like Dolby. I would always take the Dolby off because <laughs> I thought the Dolby was muddling everything. Mm-hmm. So I guess I like the hiss better than not having hiss. Yeah. But that's how we did the the early stuff. And it helped to have somebody around like Gar- Garth or Rodney because if you had somebody else, you wouldn't have to do another overdub. You just have them perform it with you. Did any of those songs uh, make it to like early Dead Milkman records? Uh, yeah. Yeah, uh, the song called Plum Dumb was one of those songs. <laughs> it made it on there. I think the song Junkie was another one, and the song Spitsink. These all made it onto, I think, the first album that we did. Okay. So I know that I know you were uh, you know a fan of like Dylan and Bowie and Ramones and stuff like that. Yeah. Were you inter- interested in like parody music or anything of that sort? I'm just curious if like th- there was a parody music influence on you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was. I don't. I can't speak for anybody else in the band, but I I like the Doctor Demento show, which had some parody stuff on, and I like Weird Al. I guess I still do like like. Weird Al. Dr. Demento, did they play Dead Milkman? I feel like they did, didn't they? Yes. They played Dead Milkman. And the way we found out was we heard it. I didn't know ahead of time, but we we were on tour, I think, for either Eat Your... Might have been Eat Your Paisley eh? in 86. And we were doing a late night drive after one show. A lot of times back then, if we didn't have a place to stay, we would just drive to the next town <laughs> and it was easier to drive at night. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> we're just flipping through the radio and Dr. Demento comes on and I say, stop, that's Dr. Demento. Let's listen to it. And I guess there's some grumbling. Oh, not this show. No, let's listen to it. <laughs> like there's not that much else on the radio. I think we were going through Texas or something or out in nowhere. And... <laughs> to our surprise, he played Bitch and Camaro right then. <laughs> on that, it was like I think a Sunday night or something. I don't, I don't remember that. It was always on Sunday nights in Philly, but it may have been. A day. I think it was late at night, and there it was. He played Bitch and Camaro, and I remember Rodney being upset because he he had a set. He censored. <laughs> he uh, cut out the AIDS part. Uh. <laughs> it has. There's a part in there where Rodney makes his does his little doors thing so that was all spliced out so they did a special edit for the dr demento show which i guess the dr demento producers did i don't know i don't think the record company yeah did they um when when that song was played on college radio did they cut that part out too no i don't think so So just on uh dr demento and i have that record i have the record now the dr demento record i bought it on ebay later on when i saw it went up for sale Mm -hmm. somebody sold it 
So was that exciting for you though to get uh It was exciting for me. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I'm like, I can't believe it. this is wonderful. And then Ronnie's like, This is not wonderful. He censored our song. <laughs> <laughs> but but we we were we're we're friendly with him. We we met him at a record sign. Oh yeah, in California. Yeah. When was that? Oh, the later eighties. Okay, I don't remember exactly, but we were we were doing the record signing, and there he is, and he bought a stack of records, a huge stack of records. Wow! So he came to have you sign his records. We didn't sign his records. He was there. I think, I don't know. I guess we signed record. I think we signed a record for him. Hmm. I think we signed a Ted Milton record for him, but it was like anybody. It's like one of those things for promotional things. The record company makes you do Mm -hmm. where you're behind the counter. So people will hopefully buy the records there or they can bring them in if they already had them and or whatever, whatever they want you to sign a poster. But yeah. I read somewhere too that uh, Residence, you were a big fan of the Residence. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't. Yeah, we were, as a band, we were, especially, I think Dave was probably the biggest band. You, you not as much as uh, Dave or some of the other members? Oh, I like the Residence. Yeah, I like them. But I'm, I'm not as knowledgeable. Is there like an album or an era mm-hmm. that you particularly like of the Residence? I had one of their albums. Now, now I can't remember if what it was called. It was the one with the weird songs on it. Yes, that's the one. <laughs> the it was all covered. Oh, it was it was their uh, one side was John Philip Sousa covers, nice. I think. Yeah. Which was good. It was good. Big Lizard in my backyard is your debut record. Before that, you have a tape called uh, "Death Rides a Pale Cow." Cow. Mm-hmm. Can we can we talk a little bit about the recording of Big Lizard? Because, like, didn't this was recorded in like a couple sessions plus? Also, some of the recordings were done at Dean's house. Yes. Yeah, we did two sessions. Originally, the way I envisioned it was going to be a 10-song EP. Yeah. Because uh, a lot of the bands I liked were doing that sort of thing, like the Meat Puppets' first album and, and the Metal Circus by Who's Could Do. These short, but every song's amazing. And we, we, we picked out our 10 songs and we spent all of our band fun on the studio time. And we, re- we recorded them and mixed them. But as luck had it, um, we couldn't, we couldn't find a record company to do it. We were going to have, we were going to, our friend Dan Maff, who later became our tour manager, was going to bankroll the pressing. And we had researched all that stuff and we were going to do it, you know, press it up on our, on our own. Being that no one else would put it out anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But then fate struck and he got his car total in an an auto accident. As Dean recently reminded me when we were trying to figure out the history of this. And uh, yeah, we, we, we didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't want to make, we already made our own tape of Death Rides of Pale Cow, but a lot of the same songs were going to be on this. So it didn't seem to like a self-release cassette was not the way to go. Mm-hmm. And Dave found out that there was a record company called Fever in Philadelphia. And I think he, he did some research. He did, he like, 
went to the went to the guy the house of the, the he went to the address that was a residence and knocked on the door and introduced himself and it turned out to be this guy named Colin Kammerer who was a professor at Wharton School he was an economics professor and Dave studied economics in in at Temple and was studying economics for a master's at um, Purdue University when he quit. And that's right before he joined. He became the dead part of the dead milkman when he moved back to Philly from Indiana. So he had a, he, he, he hit it off pretty well with this guy. And then the rest of us all went after a band practice. It was only like five or six blocks from where we practiced and met him and played our tape for him. And he was interested, but he wanted, he said he didn't want to, he wasn't interested in putting out an album that was so short or an EP. So he had us go back in the studio. He gave us money to go back after consulting with, he had a partner in Chicago. And he also requested that we go play in Chicago. So we went, we did a little road trip at the end of the, I think, 84 and played out there and met his partner. I forget his name. And slept on his floor. <laughs> and he, he said, okay, well, you know, he, it was kind of like a test to see if we were willing to go on tour. And he already knew the song Bitch and Camaro because we played it on the radio, uh, at this radio, college radio station, University of Pennsylvania, WXPN, uh, on their live on the radio on the Sunday night show that was reserved for punk rock and new wave. But yesterday's now music today. They would have bands come in every now and then. So yeah, we played that, and somebody carded it up and started playing it on yesterday's now music today. Mm -hmm. uh, Bitch and Camaro. So on the basis of that, he signed signed us to a deal. But we had to go back and record some more songs. So we recorded another ten. Um, I didn't feel as confident on, on the, in the second session as in the first session. I don't think we did as well. But I was miserably sick with a cold, but we didn't cancel. <laughs> uh, and I don't, I think that I was on, uh, I was given cough syrup, so I would stop coughing and I think it made me play a little sloppier than normal, but it, it, it all worked out. But we got, I think we got like eight songs out of that and we padded it out with a couple songs from Dean's four track. He had a Fostex uh, four track where we would record. That's what we recorded. Um, a lot of a tape called Somebody Shot Sunshine, which was our follow-up to Death Rides a Pale Cow. That's that's what happened. We were selling this tape called Somebody Shot, Shot Sunshine and had those, those tracks on it. But Colin also said, please stop selling this tape. <laughs> please stop selling your tapes because he didn't, and we were, they were selling pretty well. We were just duping them in, our, in you know, cassette to cassette thing. <laughs> At, we were selling them at shows. He says, just please stop selling these because it's, he wants there to be a demand for the album as if, you know, people want to buy the vinyl if they already have these tapes. So on the, on the song Rastabilly, at the very end of the Rastabilly, you say, I'm all messed up on cough syrup, so never mind. Oh, that's, that's, oh, Rodney. that's Rodney. Yeah, Rodney said oh, that. Okay. Yeah. Was that, was that at the second? Was that at the second session when you were? Yes. I assume that inspired that's a, that much. That's one of Rodney's ad libs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Maybe because I was all messed For up. For sure. Uh, yeah. 
I didn't really think I was that messed up, but I was messed up enough, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> now, now I read, I read this, uh, this interview where, um, somebody in the band said that, uh, bitch and Camaro was inspired originally by, uh, the suicidal tendencies institutionalized. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe okay. they're, they're similar. Yeah. Cause it's like top, talking in the beginning and then fast but we don't go back to the talking like they no <laughs> we just go fast and that's it <laughs> you, you did one take <laughs> at the session uh, thinking you would have another shot at it and yeah because we messed it up yeah because <laughs> rodney rodney's supposed to also say he's going down the shore like in the in the if you hear the death rods of pale cow tape version it's the way it's i think i quote unquote supposed to be but now there is no supposed to be right. Cause after that, we just goofed around and did whatever. As long as we got back to the, you got a car now. Thing. Yeah. What kind of car do you have? Then it was fine. We would do it all kinds. We'd do all kinds of ad living in there, but nobody seemed to mind. <laughs> I thought we were going to do it again. <laughs> and then even in the second session, we didn't have time. I feel like the second session was shorter, but I don't know. Maybe my time experience is wrong but we we also did songs in the second session that just stayed in the can because they were so bad i think we tried to do surfing cow we may have tried to do watching scotty die they just didn't come out right so lo and behold it gets it, the, the 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 big lizard album featured most most of our fastest songs the the opening track of the record a tiny town like this is an example of what we're talking about earlier like it's the song is from a point of view of a of a character and the character's like a unsavory character. Right, but it's not our point of view. And Ronnie's good at that. Ronnie's good at making sure that you know it's not him. At least I think so because yeah. of of how derogatory he, he he like I think no one no one who's really that person is gonna say my daughter's a Mongoloid or Gene because our Gene has been destroyed. <laughs> at that point you must know that he's just kidding although there were people that thought we were serious back then oh yeah because i i felt like th that was one of the unique things about because a lot of a lot of punk bands were political and, and commenting on this sort of you know racism and and um right-wing stuff and you guys' take you was to sort of do the satirical like songs like that and but i i thought that they were pretty like pretty um effective like ways to to satirize that stuff at, of that time yeah because you're making fun of them yeah did you have a hard time i mean you said sometimes people wouldn't get it but did you have a hard time understood people understanding that you guys had a, a point of view that you were saying something i mean some of your songs are like obviously like funny but that there was like there is like content in your songs that isn't just strictly funny yeah i was hoping that they would we i do remember getting a reading one letter from uh, a college radio station manager who was probably a college student uh, who felt the need to to tell us that there's no that his the station would never play anything by us ever there's no room for this type of uh, sentiment <laughs> for this racism and he quoted like the tiny town really whatnot wow. and i think we responded or somebody in the band responded trying to explain it 
so be it. <laughs> and hopefully there weren't any people that were racist who thought, oh, we, we can we can <laughs> relate to that. <laughs> yeah. Otherwise they'd be a little wacky. But I su- I suppose there could have been. Yeah. If if <laughs> racists aren't always the smartest. And also the AIDS thing that caused that the pe- some people had had uh, objection objection to that making fun of the doors in that way mm-hmm. that's homophobic and and um, of course they had, uh, <laughs> Dr. Demento thought it was not right for his audience so he got rid of it the and that always seemed like that line always just seemed like kind of silly like a non sequitur. I don't know, like what what Rodney's point of view was when he wrote that line. Yeah, the 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 door song with the AIDS line. Yeah, is that what you think? That it was just kind of like a- dirty hippie. You're gonna get an STD because mm-hmm. I don't. I don't. <laughs> he didn't. He always, hippies were a big target of his. Yeah, <laughs> I could tell. <laughs> okay, so um, on a Biel Bielzebubba. You have a song called Stuart, and uh, I want to ask about a line that John Worcester kid, the kid that delivers papers in the neighborhood, he's a foreign kid. Some of the neighbors say he smokes crack, but I don't believe it. Yeah, he's a fun kid, not a foreign kid, but a fun. Uh, he used to play drums in Super Chunk, and now he plays drums in uh, Mountain Goats. And he also plays for Bob Mole band. Um, yeah, he's he was. What band did he play? I think he played in a band called Mr. Happy. I might be wrong, but the, uh, at our very first show, he he put he organized the very first show that the Dead Monkey played as a band. Really? Yes. Hmm. That's when we met. That's when I met him. I, Dean Dean already knew him because he's from Dean's neck of the woods, and Dean and he also had a tape. Tape, tape recorded project called Drum Dorks, <laughs> which they, they play, they 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 perform as characters as like junior high school kids who are, who love to play the drums. <laughs> so the Drum Dorks and <laughs> th- their songs are just them talking and then let's play, let's do a paradiddle, paradiddle, paradiddle. <laughs> they're they're not playing; they're playing on their little practice things, and that's the tape. That's pretty funny. Or at least I thought it was funny. And John, John back then had another alter ego called John Johnny Earthshoe, and he had a a band called Earth, not a not a band that played live but made tapes. See, see this was a thing. Lots of we, Dead Milk weren't the only band that made tapes uh, for you know pretending that they're in a band. His was called Earthshoes for the Needy. <laughs> <laughs> And he had some silly. I mean, you could hear the, the his early sense of humor in that in that project too. So we we were, we called him Johnny Johnny Urshue. I mean, he called himself that. Uh, and he hung around our practice spot up in Sellersville, Pennsylvania, when we practiced and operated the tape machine when we recorded our um, practices. That's how he got it. That's how Johnny Urshue got a credit. That's like a little reference in the song, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, the a callback to John Worcester, his real name. Yeah. Which he didn't know about until he heard it. Oh yeah. <laughs> until the album came out and he heard it. 
So it probably came as a shock to him. The Stuart in the song was based off of a real person named Stuart uh, from a West Lafayette trailer park. Yeah. Um, from your first tour, I believe. We played, we played, uh, yeah, on our first tour for the 1985. Um, and Stuart Frescus, spelled S T W A R T, lived in that trailer park. He organized a show for us there. He was a friend of Dave Bloods when Dave was studying economics at Purdue. Stuart was and is a chemist. And they stayed in touch. We still we still see Stuart every now and then when we when we play in Chicago. Mm. But Stuart Frescus came on tour with us on one of our early tours as a roadie. So we got to know him for we got to know him pretty well. Was he a good roadie? <laughs> yeah, he was very responsible. He's a super intelligent person. Nice. He's he does psychedelic, or was doing psychedelic research before before he became a roadie. He was working for a chemical company, and he and they were doing something wrong that they illegal, and he decided to be a whistleblower on them. And because of that, he said, "I have to get out. Of, I have to leave town. <laughs> I have the specific need to not be <laughs> not be found right now. Do you mind if I go on tour with you? And we're like, well, we could use a hand. <laughs> Is there any, um, I'm, I'm curious also about the line in the song that says, uh, they're good, fine people, but they don't know what the queers are doing to the soil. I was curious about the, the significance of that or where that came from. That's just making fun of these kooks. And their conspiracies. <laughs> and they always seem to have to, you know, it's all the fault of, you know, it's all the fault of these people. It's all the fault of the queers. It's all the fault of the immigrants. Yeah, yeah. And this is why. <laughs> they're building, it's so, it's so ridiculous. Yeah, they're building landing strips for Martians. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so that same record, you had uh, Punk Rock Girl, which is your biggest hit. So when you shot the video, you're singing the song and the band behind you is kind of like fucking around and like sometimes making you laugh. So I, I get the impression that when you guys were shooting the video for this, you weren't like trying to make a big deal out of it. You were just trying to like make something fun, like like it's not a big budget video or anything like that. Well, it was a budgeted video. It didn't, wasn't the cheapest thing. Our videos got more progressively more expensive as we went on. I didn't necessarily want to do any lip syncing, but it was like, oh, the, when we were planning it, so you have to do a little bit. You have to do this or that. I said, well, let's just kind of just make fun of the whole lip syncing thing. And that was one way we got, yeah. we got to it. We were purposely showing the, the sound, rec- the, the sound recordist in the video so that it was almost <laughs> meta yeah and you see us you see the outtakes kind of but that's part of the video sure so it's kind of like a conscious decision it's probably adam bernstein's idea he would talk with us he, he's a, the, the, the he was the video director for all of our videos except our very first one which we did on our own the very first one was the thing that made hippies. After that, we got Adam, we got Adam to do the. Ooh, 
big time operator video. Mm-hmm. And, and we found him because we saw a They Might Be Giants video that we really, really liked on that 120 minutes program on MTV. Mm-hmm. And we called MTV. We didn't know, uh, that was before they had credits on the videos. So we had to call to find out who, who made the video. And they very kindly told us it was this guy, Adam Bernstein. And we looked him up and he was in New York and he agreed to do our video. Hmm. And usually the way we did our videos was we had a powwow session beforehand. What ideas do you have? We would give him all our ideas. He would say, well, what's, he would say, what's, tell us what's plausible and what he thought of them and come up with a grand scheme and then do it figure out where where we could you know location scouts would go out and find it, it was a whole, whole you know almost like making a commercial because that's what it was making a commercial i i wasn't thrilled with making videos but you know once we with adam it seemed more fun than anything that i could imagine otherwise <laughs> yeah i i also read that you were um that there was more pressure after punk rock girl was a success that there was pressure on you to like you know, create more hits in that vein. It always seems to work that way. It's like the record company doesn't pay too much attention to you until you have a hit. And then they pay too much attention. to you. <laughs> it's like, you don't get enough attention, then you get too much. And so they're all kind, but I think, yeah, that because I s- sang that song and I'm not the, the normal singer of the band that created an- another tension, another layer of tension. And one, uh, one thing about the contract that we signed with Fever Records, who in turn had a deal with Enigma Records, we weren't we weren't on Enigma Records, but we had to deal with that contractual obligation via Fever Records, mm-hmm. the Philly the Philly company. Was that we didn't have the right to choose which song was going to be the emphasis track or the video. That was a Fever uh, and Enigma records choice Mm. so we didn't choose punk rock girl they did and then after that it's like now they want more songs that are sung by me that's unfortunate and (laughs) were you surprised how big that song got i was very surprised yeah looking back it's easy to see maybe it didn't make that much sense to me back then it was a song that i wrote for dave and mine, uh, other project called <laughs> Ornamental Wigwam, mm. which we did as it, we, we did as a duo. We never got to make an album. Unfortunately, we did home recordings, but that was a song we played for at least a year before it became a milkman song as Ornamental Wigwam. Mm-hmm. Just Dave and me. The song, like it's, I mean, obviously, you know, it's a catchy song, so you, you, I, it makes sense why it caught on the way it did. But I think it was, I remember it was surprising to me, you know, being a fan of Big Lizard, um, that the band who made Big Lizard was like getting MTV play. It seems strange to me. It, it, it is strange, and it's a fluke that they even put it in the rotation in the begin to begin with, mm-hmm. but. Supposedly, it did well on their uh, 
show that was dial MTV. And that was lucky for us. Now there was this thing I want to ask about called club MTV where you guys played it was, uh, Julie Brown hosted it. Yeah. Downtown Julie Brown. Yeah. Um, you played punk rock girl. <laughs> Do you remember this? Of course. So you, you're playing this song. Um, I think Rodney has a tuba. Am I, yeah. There's no tuba in the song. <laughs> we tried to make it as difficult for them as possible. <laughs> yeah. We didn't, we didn't want to do it. We said no to a record company or we said no to Enigma, mm -hmm. not Fever. We were dealing with Enigma. Uh, and our manager said, came back in uh, a couple, we were on tour when they, we got the request and we had already done 120 minutes, which was great. I thought that was a good thing for us. That was right down our alley. Yeah. That, that, that venue of MTV, but to be on club MTV didn't make any sense. And I think unanimously we said, no, we don't want to do that. <laughs> and then our manager came back a couple of days later and said, you can't say no. Enigma's not, Enigma Records isn't letting you. You have to. And we were, we, we had two shows booked in a row at 930 Club in Washington, D.C. So we were, we also said, well, how, how on earth are we going to go from Wash? We have to play a show that same night. And so they, they tape, they tape in the daytime. You can take Amtrak. Don't worry about it. They'll rent anything you need. They said, oh, they'll rent anything we need. Let's ask for the craziest things. <laughs> and we get, we ask for a tuba. We get there, there's no tuba. And then the, the whole thing started where we, we, we become asshole rock stars and say, nope, we're not doing it. You got to get a tuba. So they, someone had to run out and rent a tuba. <laughs> and the, the drum set is like, has these symbols that are so high. They're like, as high as they could possibly be. Yes, we 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 purposely made it ridiculous. <laughs> and we had some we got a bunch of rubber fishing worms and we had somebody behind the stage throwing them over <laughs> us into the dancers. <laughs> which you don't really see in the video, but we knew it was happening. <laughs> it was just and and we, we played it as straight as possible because there's a run through that you do and then there's the real thing that that they tape. And they only do one one go through. The moshing kids. The moshing kids. The moshing kids are the they, they were the normal dancers, but they they were specifically told by the producers that they they were to do the moshing <laughs> for us. I don't know what got into Club MTV. They they must have lost their minds. The producers to have us even on there. Maybe they maybe they were trying to to move it into a more punk thing. I know Green Day blew up like a couple years after that. No, a few years. Uh, yeah, 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 a few years after that, and and maybe maybe that's the band that they really were looking for. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know it really it is a weird time capsule when you think of like late '80s Club MTV, Dead Milkman. It's such a weird just confluence of all these things. Yeah, because we knew we weren't the music that they that they wanted. Yeah. <laughs> Like, and we even said we have this other thing called Instant Club Hit from our previous album. Wouldn't that wouldn't it make more sense if we play that on your show? It's it's a dance song. <laughs> no, 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 no. We don't go. We don't. We don't go back to last year. <laughs> so Dead Milkman did a fake uh, breakup in Norway. Yeah, you heard about that. <laughs> we did that only because we heard that that's where Camper Van Beethoven broke up. I don't know how true that is, but we heard Camper Van Beethoven broke up in Oslo. Norway and 
we got booked in Oslo, Norway, and we thought this would be fun to, I mean, <laughs> to to stage a onstage breakup of the band, <laughs> and we did we did just that. We on stage we staged an onstage breakup and broke up in Oslo, but it was fake. It was fake. <laughs> I think we got back together. We we, we re- reunited for the encore. <laughs> <laughs> so it didn't it didn't really take. No, it didn't take. What was the setup? Did uh, somebody pretend to get mad at a song? Yeah, either I got mad at Rodney or my, Rodney got mad at me, which is believable because it happens a lot. But <laughs> we took it to the the nth degree, and I think I threw down my guitar and it smashed anything. I'm just like, I'm out of here. Stormed out into the freezing cold <laughs> and like audience was befuddled. What's going on? I mean, we weren't that big in Norway anyway. Did, did you have a big show about getting back together for the uh, encore? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Hugs and kisses. And there we go. <laughs> and I don't know if anybody got the joke that it was all making fun of camp. <laughs> but it's even more fun to do those sort of jokes when, it's a, it's a small show and nobody really is in on it. We have to entertain ourselves. Did Camper Van T- Beethoven break up on stage? I don't <laughs> think so. I mean, I, <laughs> I want to ask about, so we talked about the new record a little bit. Um, when the album's released, you're going to be, um, you're going to be giving like 50% of the profits to uh, rock to the future affiliate organization is yeah that how, is it? we did that for our we did that for our ep but to a different organization it was girls rock philly but now it's rock to the future what what is rock to the future it's like a school it's sort of like school of rock but it's not school of rock mm-hmm. for kids from philadelphia who may otherwise not get a chance to to perform music mm-hmm. because of the way the music programs in, in public schools are so underfunded or almost non-existent now. Yeah, for sure. This has to come up to a, you have to be in grades six to 10 or at least entering sixth grade. You must live in Philadelphia and there is an income requirement, I think you have to be 200%, at least 200% of the poverty level. For, you have to have some need, special need. I see. And a willing willingness to play music with other people. Um, and it's, it's like an after-school thing, twice a week or something. Very cool. Um, do, you have a, do you have a release date for the record? June 9th. June 9th. All right. Don't go anywhere. If you want to hear the rest of this conversation, head over to our Patreon. Thank you for listening to In Defense of Scott. Please rate and review this podcast and tell a friend. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at In Defense of Scott. Pick up Aaron's book, In Defense of Scott, at your local bookstore or online. This podcast is edited by Chris Reeves of Ska Punk International. This is your co-host, Adam Davis of Omnigon, leaving you by saying Ska now more than ever.
Hey everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks.